everyone welcome back to latter day takes on today's episode we bring back a recurring guest my own mother lily anderson phd in marriage family human development from byu a current marriage and family counselor in her own private practice and recent guest of the follow him podcast anyway my mom comes back on and uh we talk about miracles because we she and i had gotten into other discussions about feedback i had gotten from my one of my episodes I did last week when I went solo and talked about kind of miracles, things like that, because there were a lot of people that kind of reached out and were like, hey, I like this, I like that, kind of inquired a little bit more. And I thought, you know what, my mom and I have already been talking about this here and there. And so I thought, why not have some conversations about it now? Um, she's great. Uh, it's always nice to have her on. And I hope you all appreciate it. Sorry, it's out on a Wednesday. I know that's a little unique. I don't generally do Wednesdays. I like to do either Monday or Tuesday releases and then a Thursday release. With that said, I have thought about going back to maybe one a week just because it can, you know, it's come becomes time consuming and it's not like I'm making it a profession or anything. And I haven't really been looking to monetize this, but um, anyway, if y'all are just dying for me to push it out twice a week, obviously uh, I can do my best to make that happen more regularly moving forward. Maybe y'all can help with the content. I don't know. I'm open to suggestions per usual. I hope y'all like this one. I hope y'all are having a great week. It's hump day today. Happy hump day, everyone. And let's finish strong for this week. And also, if you like this podcast, please share. It always helps when people share. Subscribe, leave a review. It's kind of funny. Starting to see some negative ratings pop up, which is probably a good thing ultimately because that means it's just going out there. But hey, if you get a second, Maybe give it a nice rating, just because then I know you care a little bit more. Or you give it a bad rating, and I know you don't care. And that's fine, too. Not preferred, but it's fine. You are entitled to your opinion. Anyway, love you all. Have a great week. Talk to you later. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful, and these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right. We are back on with my own mother, who has so graciously accepted another invitation to come back on to the podcast to talk about some topics that are extending off of previous podcasts that I've done. Uh, specifically today, we're going to actually talk about kind of miracles and how those are maybe manifest, how those are demonstrated, how they're received. But before we get into that, I actually do want to talk about something that's fairly relevant. Um, we're seeing an interesting shift, somewhat of a shift, because it's always kind of been there, of our culture, our country, and anti-Semitism. And I'm curious kind of how you think that all fits into the narrative of the last days. Well, it certainly fulfills prophecy. I remember, um, you know, I'm getting pretty old now, but I uh, studied a lot about the last days prophecies when I was in high school and then my early years in college. And I was still coming out of kind of a post-World War II pro-Israel glow. Um, of course, the whole world had some guilt after the Holocaust. And when I read prophecies concerning how um, all nations would combine against Israel in a last big battle, it was shocking because I thought, wow, that would really take a lot to make that happen because there was really a very pro-Israel feeling. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the early 70s, and I um, there still was a very pro-Israel kind of, again, I think it was sort of a post-World War II guilt-induced pro-Israel bias. Um, I had Jewish friends when I grew up in Indianapolis. Um, I didn't sense from them anything but, you know, a pretty comfortable and, and positive environment never saw anybody. There were a lot of, of Jewish kids in my school, and I was friends with a lot of them. I was the only member of the church in my very large junior high in Indianapolis, and my older sister was one of three Latter-day Saints in a 
really big North Central High School in Indianapolis. So anyway, my friends were not members of the church at school. Um, so it was very surprising to me, but it is a fulfillment of prophecy. And I remember kind of noting as things have changed along the path of, uh, you know, our country's journey and seeing, of course, Europe as well and other countries, you know, in Europe, and I don't remember the year, but it, people have predicted that by the year 2000, what is it, 55 or anyway, something not in the too far distant future, there'll be more mosques than Catholic churches in Europe. Hmm. Because, of course, there's been a huge influx of immigration in Europe um, from the Middle East or Northern Africa countries into Europe. And the Europeans aren't really reproducing anymore very significantly in terms of birth rate. So, And then here come the um, Northern African population there, mostly Muslim, and they do have big families. I remember reading not too long ago that the number one boy's name in the UK was Mohammed. And the number two baby boy's name in the UK was Muhammad with a U. So that, that speaks pretty loudly. And again, you can get into Angela Merkel and how, you know, there was some German guilt about not being kind to non-Germanic types during the war. So now they're not going to shove out immigrants. And, you know, there have been interesting repercussions. Instead of being the European Union, then what she decided in terms of immigration really impacted the entire EU. So, okay, not getting too far afield here. Um, it makes more sense. I mean, I can see how, how God's prophecies are fulfilled in a way that, of course, I could never have envisioned as a young person setting last day's prophecies where I, it wasn't that I doubted. It was just like, wow, what's that going to take? You know, how is that going to happen? That the world will be anti-Israel. Wow, you know. But here, you know, in my very lifetime, I have seen so many changes. It's tragic. It's always tragic. Hatred, you know, is one of Satan's best weapons. He always inspires hatred and enmity. And Which all stems from pride, it seems like. All stems from pride and competition and yes, and really not understanding who we are or who anybody is. But so it's it's ugly and it's awful and I really lament it and I and I think it's horrible. I think it's horrible that we don't have a stronger voice of defense and and standing up for the Jewish people in the public square, in our government. There are some, but I don't think they're enough. And the voices that are um, trying to equate what's going on in the Middle East as if both are the aggressors or even the, the Israelis are more aggressive because they're like an apartheid state, which is not true. Anyway, Dennis Prager has a great video on what's going on in the Middle East. It's been out for several years on Prager University. I haven't watched it for quite a while, but it was really a beautiful summary with facts and figures and dates of different agreements and when these different contentions and or wars arose and what happened and how much Israel has tried to appease and has offered territory. And, you know, they, it's really amazing. And finally, I think his conclusion is, it kind of comes down to this. He says, if what would happen if the Israelis dropped all their defenses, the Jews would be extinguished. That's what would happen because there are Arab states who have as their, mantra to extinguish all Jews. So if they stopped defending themselves, they would be exterminated. But what would happen if the Arabs dropped their weapons or their defenses? Peace. So it's terrible what's happening. I think it's, you know, again, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. You can see how it's it could happen. And of course it will, because God has said it will, that all nations will combine against Israel in that last great battle. And it's just beautiful tragically beautiful the how Christ has told us it will be that he will come when it looks like Israel is on the verge of extermination backed up against the Mount of Olives and he will come and put his foot upon the Mount and it will cleave in twain and the armies of Israel will be able to rush to protection within the mountain while he descends and the Jews will greet him with joy and celebration, thinking this is the promised Messiah for whom they have waited all these centuries. And then they will notice the marks in his hands and feet and ask him about them. And he will 
answer that tender and tragic statement, these are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And that's when they'll know as a people that he came before and was crucified by his own. Interesting times, another sign of the times um, being fulfilled. We're not quite there, but there's not a lot more to Well, it's do. funny how you relate it to kind of how you saw it when you were growing up versus now, because that's exactly something that I've thought of too. I remember specifically when we talked about this, I mean, I was, a, I was very little. I think, I mean, this is when we lived in Las Vegas, so I was probably younger than the age of 10. And I remember that whole thing with the all nations shall, you know, unite in attacking Israel, essentially. Uh, I remember hearing that at that age and being like, I even knew that the U.S. had pretty great relations with Israel. And I thought, well, how is that going to happen? Because we don't seem like we don't show any signs of being one of those nations. And I remember you said, and I don't know if you remember this, but this is at least how I remember it. Take that for what it's worth. You said, well, maybe part of the prophecy is that it's all nations will attack Israel and the U but except for the U S like not playing a role into that or something. I think it was along those lines. Um, like I said, I could be misremembering, but I remember it being kind of that way where it's, we don't know exactly how some revelations are going to be translated, obviously, or manifest. Um, um, so it was a, it was a fair hypothesis if from what I remember, mm -hmm. but now I look at it and I'm like, well, it seems like the U S is actually angling just to be one of those many nations that are going after. I mean, it's unbelievable that what we're seeing, like the justification mm -hmm. for anti-Semitism and how there was, I don't know if you saw, but literally like just today or yesterday, there was a headline in the New York times that read these attacks on anti-Semitism are so good for the conservatives or something like that as a way of saying like it just gives them more fodder to defend Israel and you're just like like that's a bad thing it was crazy um, but New York Times right the former newspaper yeah you know it's a yeah I mean it was a stretch to think of that ever really including the United States but we will see well, now it says it's, it certainly is more yeah. perceivable now how how it can happen that's certainly the direction things seem to be going and those are the loudest voices which is it's sad and i know you've talked about this a lot at what point do you contend righteously you know, um, you know I, I think of that statement that we've all heard about all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing and that happens so often because good people aren't contentious so we often, you know, say, well, okay, I don't want to fight or become, you know, but then there are times where clearly God has, has asked us to stand, you know, and, and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and stand for what's right and be witnesses. And that's an ongoing concern to, to be heard and knowing that it's not going to turn the tide of prophecy, but just to make sure that we are counted on the right hand. Right. God. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and transition to kind of what we originally wanted to talk about, because I had kind of given a podcast a little over a week ago, of just kind of my own thoughts on how miracles are manifest, how we look at miracles, how we choose to perceive them, and just kind of putting some thoughts out there, some thought experiments kind of in a way. And I got a lot of feedback for that and, and pretty much all positive. Now, I don't say that as a way of being like, well, then it must have been true. But I mean, ultimately, my, my, my overall thesis was like, what is a miracle? So you can't really apply truth to that anyway. But um, the idea that it could have, it resonated with some people and there were some people that were throwing out ideas. And I know since then you and I have talked about it and I thought, well, why not bring you back on and assess this whole idea of how miracles are perceived versus, you know, like how much of it, is it just our perception of God in our lives versus how much of it is actual intervention. And I think that could be kind of a debate like that could go on forever until the second coming essentially. And what, what role does faith play in all that and things like that. So I'm kind of curious what you've thought since we've talked about that. Okay. And I really appreciate the chance to come and talk about that on your podcast, because I think it's a, as you said, it's a deep subject and we won't cover all of it today, but there are some thoughts that hopefully will resonate with people. I think many people are familiar with a quote by Albert Einstein, where he said, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. 
the other is as though everything is a miracle. Yeah, I think that kind of sums it up. Then I think we're probably good to end the episode then, right? <laughs> to wrap it up right there. Um, obviously, perception, we say a lot in the human behavioral sciences that perception is reality. It is our reality. Now, that doesn't mean it's the reality. And I do believe that there is truth. And I believe that God knows what that truth is. And he is, he is all truth. But in our experience, we do perceive things in some pretty idiosyncratic ways. And as has been said, you know, you got five witnesses to a car accident. You're going to get five different stories right. about what happened, even with the best intentions of, of telling the truth, because perception and viewpoint and perspective, well, previous experiences. You could take people of out of it and say, when somebody's recounting a car accident five times, they're going to say something different almost every time, which that there is a psychological... Ex, not explanation per se, but like there's psychological research backing that kind of phenomenon, which really you could take that and easily apply it to the different variations of the first vision. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially something so unique and amazing to happen to a person where you're sitting here thinking like, oh, you know what? I kind of, I don't remember exactly like, or I didn't remember that part the first time I wrote it down, or I remember it a little bit differently now that I've had more chance to think about it, more chances to think about it, things like that. I think that's a valid point. Um, my master's thesis was on repressed and recovered memory and false memory syndrome. Right. So I read a ton of research at the time, and um, it was a time where false memories were really figuring largely even into legal arenas where people were imprisoned because of recovered memories. And some many times later on, things like DNA evidence showed that that couldn't have happened or other things or things were recanted. Anyway, it... Memory is a very, very dicey issue. And in our family, you'll remember that we kind of have a joke phrase about like, I distinctly remember, mm. quote unquote, meaning we have no idea if it's true right. or not, but it's our memory. And memories, one of my conclusions is from the thesis, but certainly from observation is that memory tends to conform to our current conclusions. So what we believe now colors how we remember our lives. That makes sense. And as a counselor, again, I've seen that again and again. And in my own life, of course, I've seen that. So I don't particularly trust memory perfectly. Of course, the, the Lord has invited us to journal. And journals are fascinating because you go back sometimes. And I haven't been a perfect journal keeper by any means. For a long time, my, les my letters to my missionary children were my journal. And the other times I've kept journals, and I really should go back to it because every time I've gone back and looked at a journal, I've been grateful because there were things I forgot. And at least it was a more immediate recounting of something that then memory can color or change or, you know, it can be lost, of course. So anyway, memory is interesting. And how does this pertain to miracles? Well, my point is, you know, we're back to perception, right? So Einstein's saying, you know, everything could be a miracle, nothing could be a miracle. And that's, I believe that. And I, I think that that's a lovely sentiment. I don't think it answers all questions, of course. I think that, you know, one of the big questions that kind of emerges when we talk about how God acts in our lives, how he manifests, and how his hand is revealed in an individual's life, and in our lives personally, and what we observe in the lives of others, I think we end up with the question, you know, why is God seemingly so uneven? You know, maybe even unfair, because some people seem to have a much easier life than others. And while I remember a beautiful statement by Neil Maxwell that I treasure, only God can, no, sorry, only Christ can compare crosses. Only Christ mm. can compare across. I really value and believe. Nevertheless, it's not hard to see that some people's lives are very, very much harder than other people's lives. Everybody has their troubles. I believe that God is a just God in the end. But I believe that unfairness is a necessary part of the plan. Well, if life were fair. I just want to say really quickly, that's not to say that God makes it unfair for people, right? It's what he chooses to allow to happen to people from like, I, I think you could say, you know, God's, you could make the argument that God's obedience, perfect obedience is what gives him his power. But he, in other words, he asked, he has to be 
just as obedience, obedient towards these laws of nature as anybody else. And in other words, to do that, he has to allow some things to transpire, maybe to some degree. Is that fair? I, I think it is. I do believe that he conforms to the rules of the of all the universes or all of existence and whatever, and it does give him power. But what I'm talking about here is that his plan, which he is the author of, bad English there, that his plan requires unfairness. Consider, for instance, if life were fair, then every good deed would be rewarded. Uh, let's make up a silly example. Let's say you got a $100 bill in your pocket every time you did some good thing. And every time you did something wrong, in fairness, you were punished. Maybe you got hit by lightning, not enough to kill you, but enough to hurt. What would life mean? Virtually yeah, it wouldn't have any meaning. How would anybody have the chance to really grow or overcome or be, or become more like Jesus Christ? You couldn't, you couldn't acquire virtue because, you know, anybody can react like Pavlov's dogs, you know, the bell rings and you salivate or, or any idiot can keep their hand off an electrified fence. If every time I did something wrong, I was punished immediately for it, then I would stop doing it. And it wouldn't mean because I was virtuous. It's just that I have an instinct of self-preservation and I'm not going to put my hand on the electrified fence. So there has to be unfairness in order for us to be able to demonstrate any level of virtue or acquire virtue, develop virtue, develop character. I used to tell you kids when you were growing up, when things were unfair, sometimes I'd say things like, well, first I'd listen because we should listen to people's pain and, and accept and be sympathetic. People need to talk about what's happening with them. And after we would get through the cathartic part, I would say sometimes, I would say, well, you know what? This is your chance to prove you're a Christian. Because when life is fair, you hardly have a chance to prove you're a Christian. If everything's going well for you, what kind of chance do you have to demonstrate that you're choosing God in the face of whatever else? And remember, of course, Joseph Smith said that God would wrench our very heartstrings. And in order to obtain our calling election made sure, which is a whole different doctrinal issue, but very important, that qualifies us for the kingdom and the highest level of the kingdom, he said that it was only when a man could demonstrate that he would serve God, and he used the phrase, at all hazards, which by definition means it's unfair, because here we are trying to be servants of God and to be compliant and consistently obedient and acquire virtue, become more and more like Jesus Christ. And, and again, you look at Joseph Smith's life. Was it fair? He died an ignominious death at age 38. Was that fair? It, it had to be that way. Yeah. So I don't think that life is fair. And I think that when we try to make it fair or we worry about unfairness, we kind of miss the point and we can get really easily lost in the weeds. When we, you know, what do they say? If it, life were fair, we'd all live in Ethiopia or you know, someplace difficult. It's not fair. It's not. And now God has made many promises about how he's going to even things out. He says things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He says he's going to redeem the, the heathen nations. He's, he who exalts himself will be made low. You know, the low will be exalted. I mean, he, he says there is a day coming where there will be justice and fairness. And I trust in that. It gets me through the unfairness of life. Because I believe that it's all going to work out. Joseph Worland called that the law of compensation. I usually refer to it as the law of restoration, I'm not referring to the restoration of the gospel, to the restoration of all things, including where God heals our wounds. How can he heal our wounds without making it fair? And I think he will. I believe he will. Absolutely. So I think most people would agree with you that at the end, it's all going to be equal. But what is that to say? And here's a I think here's an example. So I've written about this. An example that comes to mind right away is something like Alma the Younger, right? And and his experience with an angel. And I've thought about that situation a lot because I think it's easy to look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem very fair for him to have the divine and heavenly intervention to tell him that he was off course and this is how you get back on course. And then from there, it's like he becomes Alma the Younger, which there's a lot of nuance to that whole story in and of itself. Um, and it... And even Alma the Younger himself, when he says, how do I know the gospel is true? Basically, how do I know these things are true after he bears his testimony? He doesn't say it's because an angel came down and made my, he righted a wrong. He says, because I fasted and prayed about it. So in, even in his own words, he's saying, I've had to figure this out on my own. Like the angel essentially didn't have a whole lot to do with it. Now it may have been a catalyst. And that's where it's interesting to me because 
it did seem like there was it was necessary for some intervention there because if you go back into Alma's life growing up, it's possible that he actually, a lot like Saul, which is who I paralleled it with before he became Paul, had a bad shake at life. That it wasn't exactly... They were on a terrible trajectory, but the difference being is that what they thought they were doing was the truth. Because it's possible Alma the Younger looked at the sins of his father or in the past that he may have even witnessed as a wicked priest in King Noah's court personally, firsthand, or some other people may have told him like, hey, your dad was among the worst of the worst, and here he is a prophet telling you how to live your life. That doesn't sound right. And so maybe he's thinking, my dad's a hypocrite, and I need to actually enlighten these people. And I need to go forward and tell them like, this actually isn't true. It can't be true. And then that's where the intervention comes into play because he, he kind of approached it with the same zeal. And I think Saul did the same thing as a Jew um, going after Christians. And it was kind of like, well, let's let's maybe get these guys on the track that they need to be because they actually are, at least they're, you could say, even though they're doing terrible things, you could make the argument that they still had integrity. I have a little different take on some of that, but I think the bottom line is that we don't know all the details and many of, you know, all scriptural record is scanty when you think about how much time it covers and mm-hmm. how significant the events And it are. is hard to pinpoint where but Alma the Younger was born and things like that. Right. And that could be true. What you said could be true. The differences I see between Saul and Alma, but I could be mistaken, are that um, I think Alma was rebellious. I think he was rebelling against his father, even though, like you said, there could have been all those psychodynamic things that happened because he knew about his father's story or whatever. But he had been taught the truth, and he was in a place where the church existed and where he had those options. I, I think he was rebellious, and it says he was, doesn't it say he was like the vilest of yeah. sinners somewhere? Yeah, he refers to so, himself as that, I, at, at least. refers to himself. And, and I think sin, if we correctly characterize it, is rebellion. Now, I don't see Saul as a sinner. I see him as a very obedient Pharisee. Mm. I think Saul had harnessed his natural man because you can't really be an obedient Pharisee without harnessing the natural man to some extent. Now, you can be a hypocrite, which many of the Pharisees were in Christ, of course, you know, was severe in his condemnation of hypocrisy, always is severe in his condemnation of hypocrisy. But I don't, I don't know that Saul fell into that category. I don't think, I think Paul or Saul was, um, probably a, an obedient Pharisee trying to live the law and saw Christians as apostates and had a responsibility as one of the leaders of the Jews. Now, was he overzealous? Certainly. And he certainly had missed the mark because he didn't understand that the message was true and that Christ was the savior. So he needed redirection, but I don't think his life had to change from kind of maybe wild and crazy sin to all of a sudden becoming obedient. And the difference too, at least one of the differences we have in the record is that Alma went through three days of hell and we don't know how bad that was, but he makes it sound pretty awful. And of course, section 19 talks about, you know, how exquisite, you know, not how hard to bear, you know, not. I think there was a compensatory suffering that Alma experienced that Saul doesn't describe at least that he had to go through hell. He was, um, you know, out of it for a while until the blessing came, but I don't know that he had to suffer for a lot of natural man type willful rebellion. Okay, so again, maybe not the best comparison between those two, but and and I'm glad and yeah, similarities, and I'm glad you pointed that out because that is true. I I, like it. There are there's actual direct reference to sin and even bile sin from Alma the Younger himself, so that does automatically kind of maybe identify differences between those two. But the overall question that I have is. Why why, did why they, do they get intervention? And I would say that, again, there's much we don't know. And I'm going to get to this other point here in a second that I think is really significant. In the meantime, I would say that God has a plan. And we know that there are covenants made in the pre of life. We know there are four ordinations. We don't know very much about that. It's very sketchy. But... I suspect that there was some kind of foreordained situation where maybe Alma in the pre-earth life, we know that not everybody had arisen to the stature of of Christ or, you know, the many gods that created the world. I mean, there was a, a spectrum of 
reception of light in the pre-earth life. Maybe Alma was one of the noble and great ones who then comes and, and gets off, but because of covenants he had made or some kind of, I, I don't know. His Obviously his father is praying. Many people are praying, but many people pray all the time for loved ones who are not so sent an angel. The immediate reaction I have to that is that there are a lot of people that could look at that explanation and say, well, who, like, how in the world do we know who was elect before this life? And so, like, why is, what made them elect? And so they look at that and they think, well, why can't I be one of the elect? Like, what, like, where are the differences? Here's the part that I think is significant. And it comes from the third lecture on faith, which I read again when I was very young, probably an undergrad. (laughs) And it's a marvelous little book. Um, generally attributed to Joseph Smith. It was the teachings of the School of the Elders, although some more modern commentators think Sidney Rigdon was a big contributor as well, and they don't designate exactly who taught what, but it's it's a valuable little book, um, and I encourage people to read it if they're interested. And I've never forgotten this one. There's a lot I've forgotten from this wonderful book, and I should read it again, but uh, the lecture third is The Character of God. And in it, um, I'm going to read just a a few verses here. Let us here observe that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. Okay, so that's pretty big. You know, how are we going to have enough faith to attain life and salvation and exaltation, of course? First, the idea that he actually exists. Well, that's pretty obvious. We do need to know that God exists. And some people don't, but many... Most of the world has been exposed to that idea. Second, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. Now, this is essential, and I'm going to come back to it. Thirdly, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his, meaning God's will. And it goes on, but I'm going to stop there. So let's talk about... The second one, I think because of the first vision, as members of the church, if we accept the first vision and the gospel being restored as Joseph Smith uh, taught, we know much more about the character of God than the rest of the world, Um, even the rest of the Christian world, because there still is the belief in the Trinity, three and one, one and three, that he is without body parts and passion. Sometimes you hear them say, you know, he is so large, he can fill the universe, but so small, I can dwell in my heart. Anyway, there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions about the character of God in the world. And that's the Christian world, let alone other religions that characterize him in other limited ways. So I think that because we have that big leg up because of the first vision, sometimes we sort of stop there. But this is an ongoing quest to understand God. I think that, you know, of course, in the intercessory prayer in John 17, Christ praying to the Father for us says, I don't remember which verse says, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's that's an ongoing commandment, to come to know God. I think that in Isaiah, when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Mine are higher. I don't think that's an indictment. And I don't think it's even a, just a description. I think it's an invitation. Come to think the way I do. Learn how I think. Learn my ways. Come to know the character of God. And of course, as it's written here in lecture third, his perfections and his attributes. I think that there's a lot of suffering and confusion in the world because we don't understand enough about God and his character and his attributes and his perfections. I think that many people suffer because they they don't think things are fair in the world. And as I said, they aren't fair. Anybody with two eyes and you know ears or sense can can figure that out. And I believe that it's necessary for the plan. But I think that we, if we understand that God loves people even more than we do, when we have concern for people who are dealing with injustice. Do we think God doesn't care about that even more than we do? Remember that beautiful story that Christ tells about, you know, which of you, if your child asks of him, what does he say? Bread will give him a stone or a fish, a serpent. Like, like we, and we're just human, but if 
we're normal parents who love their children and they ask meat or bread or a fish, are we going to give them a stone or a serpent? No, we want to feed them. And then he says, if you being evil, and I don't think the word evil there means wicked. I think it means human. If you being human and limited and imperfect and unfinished know how to give good gifts into your children, how much more does your father know? Like, why don't we trust him? Why don't we trust that if I can have compassion to my own children or to my friends or to the neighbors or to people in Ethiopia or people suffering from racial prejudice or injustice or starvation or whatever, you know, those who are victimized by evil in the world, then there are many people who deal with abuse every day and people who die young because of neglect or abuse or whatever. I mean, there's just, there's so much going on in this world that is evil. Satan is having his heyday as prophesied. He's raging. But if I think that I can care about those things, am I saying God doesn't? I mean, that that's not okay. And I don't mean that people deliberately are trying to write him off as uncaring, but I think we don't take those three giant steps back and look again and say, what does this mean? Like, if I can have compassion toward these people and care about the, the unfairness of this situation or this sad situation, am I saying that God doesn't care even more and have a plan to heal their wounds, to restore or compensate for the suffering in a way that I can't even imagine. I want to, a favorite quote of mine from a book I read when I was about 16 called Gentian Hill, referring to the flower, G-E-N-T-I-A-N. It's an English author named Elizabeth Gouge. Beautiful novel, by the way, historical novel taking place in 1800 during the time of Admiral Lord Nelson. At any rate, as part of this story, there's a character who never had children and always wanted to be a father, but he was hunchback and nobody would marry him. So he never has children. And then, uh, but he's a country doctor and everybody loves him. He's just such a good man. And into his care comes one day and a teenage boy without parents who's been hurt and the doctor cares for him and brings him back to health and then basically offers him his home. And even, you know, if you need a father, I could be that father for as long as it's useful. And he almost kind of holds his breath while the boy, so grateful because he has already come to know during his convalescence, the kindness and goodness of this man. And he so desperately needs a home that he just so gratefully accepts it. And they become father son. It's a beautiful relationship, one of many in the book, but he, it, the author says these words, Sometimes fortune took it into her head to lay upon a wound a salve so great as to make one positively glad of the wound. That's pretty beautiful. I don't think it's fortune. I think it's God. I know it's God. I know God will lay upon our wounds, all of our wounds, a salve so great that will make us positively glad of the wounds. That is magnificent. Yeah. And it makes it okay for me to see injustice. I'm not happy about it. And when I have any stewardship, I believe God expects me to try to deal as justly and mercifully as I can in wisdom and order, trying to understand how he thinks and act as he would act, which is, of course, you know, the trajectory of, of a Christian life, trying to learn that. And it's line upon line, precept upon precept. But I do believe I have that responsibility in my venue, in my stewardships. But I am not sent to correct all the injustice in the world. God will take care of it. Now, again, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be engaged in good causes and try to help alleviate suffering where I can. We contribute to humanitarian funds, missionary funds. We, we have all kinds of drives and things. And there are many people who do lots of good in their own sphere. And we have lots of ways to donate or contribute money or help or time. We can be kind to our neighbors. There's so much that we can do that I do believe God wants the Christian to do. But I am saying that we don't need to worry about the big picture because God has got it. And his character is perfect. And he loves them even more than we do. And he sorrows even more than we do for the injustices, for man's inhumanity to man. Isn't that what he told Enoch? Why do the heavens weep, Enoch asks? Because I look at how, you know, people are treating each other and how evil that is. Of course he cares. But this life, as he keeps telling us, is but an instant in the in the grand arena of eternity, in, the, in that huge huge, unending, you know, without beginning, without end existence that we have, this is a test. And part of the test is trusting him 
to know his character enough to believe that if I can care, I know God has a plan to make this right. I know he does. And then we don't second guess his miracles, which sometimes are great, like parting the Red Sea or manna in the wilderness or healing the sick or bringing back the dead to life. And those are visible, but they don't create faith. We all know that. Faith precedes the miracle. Miracles don't precede faith. Faith precedes the miracle. And miracles don't convert. You just said that a moment ago. It's true that that doesn't convert. It's faith. And part of that faith is trusting God coming to know who he is and feeling increased confidence that he does have the whole world in his hands. I think it's his. I think you're bringing up a really important part, which is what you noted was that, you know, miracles aren't sufficient to keep us, you know, on the mindset of what truth really is, right? It can act as a catalyst, but even then miracles generally succeed faith right they come after because look at layman they were witnesses to a lot and some of the early leaders in the church the three witnesses left yeah and so it kind of sounds like what you're saying is in order to really combat all of this and in order to get to a point where you're able to say that seems like divine intervention to me versus it would be nice if i found a shopping cart over in the next aisle but you know if i don't get it my old testimony isn't shot if i do get it what a tender mercy or whatever. Uh, and I love that phrase that Bednar introduced to the church, the tender yeah. mercies, or at least he popularized in the yeah. church. I love it. It's become a little hackneyed perhaps. And I'm sorry for that if it has, because it really has a beautiful meaning. And I do believe in tender mercies. And I think that we don't know what's going on in that woman's life from the shopping cart. I know that there are times in my life where I feel like I've spent, you know, long periods of time in the Valley of the Shadow going through a trial that um, nobody knows about or very few know about that is wrenching my very heartstrings, but that I deal with between myself and God. And I have felt many tender mercies during those times. And they might be tiny things like I found my AirPods that I should have taken better care of, but I just put them in somewhere and was in my own carelessness. I couldn't find them, but I really need them. Or at least it would make my life a lot easier if I had them. Need being a relative term, of course, but it would make my life easier. And I find them when I kind of don't deserve to find them because I wasn't careful with them. Or I catch a green light without speeding that's going to get me there quicker when I have left a little bit later than I should have. And I feel loved I feel love. That's the shopping cart. But the antithesis to that, the antithesis to that though, isn't, oh, well then I must not be loved or he must not care. I mean, that's, and that's where I want to get to kind of the solution. And it sounds like what you're really saying is that it comes down to your own personal relationship with, with Christ. And Einstein's statement, because we can find those tender mercies if we look. Everybody can. You're not going to be looking if you don't feel confident in your own relationship with Christ. Is that fair to say? Well, we don't notice. I think that, I mean, I've talked to many people over the years. It's been a great privilege. And I am so grateful to have been let into people's private lives as a counselor. There's a lot of trust there, and I, I honor it. And I have wept to hear people say, you know, I've never felt God's love. I've prayed my whole life, but I've never gotten. Yeah. What do you say to those people? Because I'm sure there are plenty out there. I, I always mourn with them first because I am so sorry that they have felt that way and have suffered. And I believe that that is exactly what their experience seems to be. But I go back to my knowledge of God, and I know that God does not shut out his children. I know he doesn't. There are receptors that are out of whack in those places. Well, he may for a season, though, right? I mean, Joseph Smith experienced that directly. But the timing there is essential because he didn't. He doesn't just throw that out there as a first, you know, gambit in in his relationship with his children. In fact, if you want to see miracles, watch little children pray. And as a mother, that was one of the greatest privileges of my life was to teach my children to pray and sit back and watch miracles. Yeah. You know, children pray that they can find their pet or that the frog comes back to life or whatever. Well, to have it's faith silly. as a child, right? 
the faith of a child. And so often, you know, there are these miracles and okay, maybe not every time, but enough that God is telling them, I'm here. I want you to know I'm here. Now, what can interrupt that for that young child? Injury. Life is hard and, and they may have not been safe in their youth emotionally or in some other way or spiritually safe. And so their receptors get bent or kind of unused or whatever, and they don't work very well. But I, I guarantee it's not because God doesn't love that person because otherwise he'd be a liar and he's not. So of course he loves his children. Of course he answers prayers, but we don't always recognize it. And that, and there's a rehabilitative process that needs to happen in those cases to help people without assigning blame or shame, because it's not their fault. They're suffering. But that doesn't mean there isn't a learning curve there of like, how can we start to recognize God's love? How can we recognize his hands? In and that's lives? my question his is, how, do, how would you tell somebody to, to how, how do they go about to start doing that? Well, the first thing is faith. And it is to believe God when he says he loves us. There's a great statement that I actually first heard in that, you know, the first of the two new Star Trek movies <laughs> that aren't even that new anymore, but the ones with Chris mm -hmm. Pine. And Fox says it. And then I looked it up because I liked it so much because it, it was a better articulation of something that I'd been trying to say for years. And I had been saying it, but this is an elegant way. It originally came from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle through his character, Sherlock Holmes. So here's the statement. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. I love that statement because it, I had been trying to express that to, to people in the past, but this is a more elegant articulation of that idea. It's impossible that God doesn't love you. That is impossible. It is against his character. Well, he'd cease to be God. He would cease to be God because, yes, so it's impossible. So whatever's left, however improbable, must be the truth, is that he is there. And he does hear our prayers. And he does show his love. So we have to learn the language of it, which is a journey. But it's a wonderful journey. And it can start with something as simple as trying to identify little love notes from God. I don't mean to make that sound hokey. No, I think really I, I actually really like the way you put that with learning the language. I think that's, I mean, it takes practice. It takes patience. It, it takes like repetitions. Else. And I actually think, and this is not to trivialize it at all. And I actually think this is why we constantly hear those primary considerations of pray, read the scriptures, pray, mm -hmm. read the scriptures, pray, mm -hmm. read the scriptures. I mean, if you are not doing that on a regular basis while still expecting to be able to recognize God's love in your life, I'm not sure that's possible on a regular basis. You may, be, you may have fortunate circumstances where it's so clear or clearer than it has been before where you're able to say, wow, I have not been living the best version of myself, but I'm still able to recognize God's love in this regard because it's so profound. Sure, that may happen, but you can't count on that to happen constantly. And you are going to be able to see those little moments that are small, those tender mercies more often, if you are grounded in that foundation of reading and praying the scriptures. And that where, that's where it also takes a lot of intellectual honesty as an individual to be able to assess that on your own and say, am I really doing at least the bare minimum to put me in a position to know this language of God's love? And, and I spoke to a woman the other day who, um, you know, really are, was very articulate about saying that I've read the scriptures for years, but I haven't really studied them before. And she said, as I've learned to study and been more adept at study and more oriented towards study, not just reading, she said, I, I have seen a flood of light come into my life. So, you know, there are those layers too. And then I'm going to mention something else that you kind of alluded to a little bit. And that is that like with Joseph Smith, there were times where God withdraws. Now we know that image, like when a child is learning to walk, if you hold his hand forever, he's not going to really find his own feet. So there are times where a parent lets go and says, okay, you can do it. And what does the kid do? They cry or they fuss. No, no, no. You know, I need to hold on. Well, yes, but there's a point at which we have to find our own feet. And in order to do that, the, the parent keeps backing up. We keep backing up so that the child can come further and find greater strength and balance and become you know, more and more able. And God certainly does that. So that's why I think it is more marvelous to see little children pray. And then you can kind of see him back up in our lives. Once we have a witness, 
he backs up, which is why I remember how many times I would tell you guys, like if somebody got up there or we'd hear a story in conference or someplace about somebody who had never paid their tithing, or maybe they hadn't paid their tithing for a long time. And then they had to decide between tithing and rent or something. And they decide, okay, I'm going to pay my tithing. And they make this big sacrifice. They pay their tithing and this check comes in the mail and it's so wonderful. They get to pay both and everything. And I would say, hold that thought. Hold that thought because God is generous. And when we are first trying out our faith, we often do get these little miracles or these little answers or whatever. I'm not going to say in every case, I'm going to say that if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the situation is what God knows is best for us, then there are those answers or blessings or miracles. And then I said, but after that, God wants to see if you really mean it. So then he's going to say, okay, can you pay your tithing with one hand tied behind your back? How about both hands tied behind your back? How about blindfolded, barefoot, hopping on tacks in a snowstorm with people stepping or spitting on you? Oh, there's a tithe payer. So I think you're, you know, it's great if you get a check in the mail and you pay your tithing, but you're not really a full tithe payer until you, and I mean a complete tithe payer, until you pay your tithing and all you get in the mail are bills. Hmm. <laughs> like, got it. Got it. There's somebody whose heartstrings have been wrenched and they will still obey because they don't want to displease God. They don't, and they don't believe that all blessings are material and they don't believe that all blessings come immediately, but they trust in the great harvest to come. And that is what's coming is a great harvest where the righteous will be exalted and the wicked made low. And it's so, it's, it's something we can trust if we come to know the character of God and it's, Exhibit and exercise, of course, the exercise of faith is behavior, meaning obedience, that we are willing to obey even without knowing. And of course, that's what faith is, right? Believing when you don't see. Trusting that God is going to keep his promises because he has said he will. So I'm banking on it. So as we're kind of coming into a close here, was there anything specifically that you wanted to address on this topic? Maybe something that you heard from my episode that addressed this or anything that you might want to have as a nice sign off? Well, I do want to say that if we are struggling to feel God's love, there are some universal languages that we can try to tap into, like the beauty of the earth. I have told grandchildren, I don't know if I said this when you were young, but I've learned to say with grandchildren, you know, God made the world for a very specific purpose, but he didn't have to make it this pretty. Mm. He's given us a great deal of beauty. And there are so many of us that know that beauty replenishes, beauty restores our souls. It feeds us in a beautiful way. So, you know, sometimes we look and we say, wow, those clouds look really cool, or the sky is so blue, or look at that tree, or the flower, or whatever, the mountains, you know, even in the winter, it can be so stunningly beautiful. But do we go back and then say, and God knew I would be standing right here or sitting right here, and I would have this perspective, and I would notice the beauty. He knew that this would be my experience, and he wanted me to see this beauty as his gift as a love note, that it could replenish my soul. So we kind of have to tie it back, not just, wow, that's beautiful, but wow, that's beautiful, and God gave it to me because he wanted me to feel his love. So the beauty of the earth is a big one, I would say. I would say that another one that's fairly universal is music. And it doesn't have to be just sacred music, although there's a lot of love in that music. I love the hymns, and I find so many tender messages of love and mercy in the hymns. Remember Bethany once, because we've talked about when you guys were growing up, we talked about the names of Christ and how many there are and how they each have an additional insight into who he is and coming to know him and his character and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then she found one in the song, um, Abide With Me, that I hadn't noticed before that I really loved. And it's in one of the verses that it says, help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. That's one of his names, help of the helpless. So my point is that he, he, will help us. He will. He wants us to feel this love. It's in those hymns. It's in the music. It can be non-sacred music. can't be foul music or negative or bad messages or whatever, but it. there's a lot of music that makes us just want to, you know, lift our spirits or tap our toe or dance or sing along. And there's love in it. Again, did he have to make a world with music? No, he didn't. But he inspired great artists with great music to lift us and feed our souls again. There's love in it. We should feel that love. 
certainly things that we read. It doesn't have to be poetry. I mean, it could be a meme that touches us. You know, some cool statement, a poster we see somewhere that we're like, wow, that really speaks to me. There's love there. Do we think that came from nowhere? I, I think I mentioned this in the Follow Him podcast, but a man named John Pontius wrote a really nice book and some others too, but this one is called Following the Light of Christ into His Presence. And in that book, he says that, you know, to people who don't think that they've ever received revelation, he says, where do you think your good ideas come from? <laughs> I think that's marvelous. I know that that's one of my particular love languages with God. When I learn something new, when I connect dots, when I yeah. see that, oh my goodness, this, this, when I have a little bit of illumination that comes into my mind, I feel incredible. I know that feeling. I do not take yeah. I it's a wonderful mm -hmm. feeling. And I think he wants all of us to recognize that when we learn but, or grow in our understanding, that it's love. And that is kind of God. extending off of that foundation that you mentioned, which I liked it's specifically. What's funny is that you say about the music and that's not something I can relate to as well. Now that's mainly because of my own fault. I'll admit, I think I could feel his love through music more if I put forth an effort, but where I do is exactly what you're talking about with the beauty of the earth. I do appreciate the beauty of the earth in in more and and deeper ways i feel like than i have before in the past that is a reflection of god's love and i like how you put that saying that he knew i'd be here in this moment appreciating his creation the grand canyon no joke is one of those places where it's like i don't know how you don't know god's real looking at this place i mean it to me and and to an atheist what's funny is that i think about it like to an atheist they're gonna think oh that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard and it's like I just feel I'm sorry. I, I, I honestly, in a not as a, in a in the least condescending way possible, I feel bad that they feel like this was something that just happened. Well, remember Alma's statement? Is it chapter thirty? I always forget, but where he says, "All things yeah, denote there is even God. the mountains." But and... clearly, it's only for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, which is his invitation to all: have the eyes to see, have the ears to hear. And let me say one more thing about miracles. I think if we understand the character of God and that He is all justice, but also all mercy and all love, and that His charity is not to just alleviate all our woes at this time, because if He did, there would be no test, there would be no growth. So there are things that must happen in this life that are heartbreaking that can allow us to overcome through faith. So when he chooses to heal somebody and not to heal somebody else, that's not arbitrary. Our limited vision may see it as arbitrary. Why would he do that for Elma the Younger, but not for this son, my son or my daughter who's a sinner or my loved one? But, and that's it's not arbitrary because God does have this perfect love. And again, if we come to know him and trust him and have faith in his character and attributes, we can alleviate that problem and say, in his perfect knowledge, he knows what will best help all the people involved in that scenario to have the optimal opportunity to be saved and exalted. And that's what he's about, the optimal opportunity, which sometimes is giving and sometimes is withholding, which is why, you know, sometimes he sent bounteous harvests and then sometimes it was a famine. And it wasn't because he was ticked off or just arbitrary or missing in action. It was because he knew what would best serve the purpose of allowing people to have an optimal opportunity to exercise their own agency in order to be saved. And we do know that evil exists and people are victimized. And when those things are not alleviated, again, we, we know the story of Alma and Amulek who watched those women and children thrown into the fire. Can you imagine their pain knowing that God had the power? If he can help so-and-so find a shopping cart, you think he couldn't have said that? Of course he When could. Amulek even but says he that, he's like, is there anything we can do here? Isn't there something we should yeah. be doing? That's right. And he says, no. And why? Because their blood is going to be a witness. You know, that's sometimes the case too. And in the grand scheme, because God knows he can lay upon our wounds a salve so great as to make us positively glad of the wound, he doesn't worry about that because he knows it's a happy ending for everyone. All you have to do is be righteous and you get that promise. And God will heal our wounds. And not only our wounds, but the wounds of all those that we have suffered for or with, that we have cared about, that we've seen injustice in the world. We've seen the plagues, the floods, the disadvantaged, the poor, and our hearts have ached. And God's heart aches, but not like ours because he knows the end and he knows he will salve their wounds. And it will be a glorious day. And it will exceed anybody's imaginings in terms of love and mercy and completion. It will be so full. I mean, look how God measures things. And this is like Luke, I think, six maybe, where he says, good measure. 
pressed down and shaken together and running over. That's how God measures. It's not scant teaspoons like in our recipes. <laughs> it's like, no, when I make this right with you, it's going to be good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Don't doubt the Lord. There's so much pain in our lives that can go away if we come to know who he really is and trust what he has said because it's true. Well, could not agree more with that. And with that, I think that's a great way to end. So, Mom, once again, I really appreciate you coming on. I know uh, a lot of people appreciate it as well. There was some great feedback when you came on that first time. I still want you to come on at some point and berate me for not being married at the ripe old age of 33, like you usually always do. Um, I don't know. Berate sounds right, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Um, have I ever done that? Have I berated you for being single? Anyway, we'll talk about that another day, but I don't think so, but I uh, certainly hope for marriage for you and uh, all good people who have the opportunity. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. I, I always enjoy this. Of course. Love you too, Mom. There's an hourglass sitting on my table I'm watching Cause everything's changing my mind Goes to a different time Old love, I remember falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right? takes time